Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Anshul Bakhtar, a Johnson MBA student and founder of the Sage Silver Screen, Johnson's film club. I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Chris Fenton. The interview focuses on his career in Hollywood, particularly with regard to his experiences collaborating with China. He and Greg discuss the role of a film executive in Hollywood, a perspective on how to approach diplomacy with China, and the danger in curtailing free speech in America to court business interests abroad. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. Chris Fenton is a Hollywood executive and author of the new book, Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. Chris literally worked his way up from the mailroom at William Morris, quickly becoming a talent agent. He subsequently spent 17 years as the president of DMG Entertainment Motion Picture Group and GM of DMG North America, orchestrating the creative and business activities of that billion-dollar global media company headquartered in Beijing. He has produced or supervised 21 films, including Looper and Iron Man 3. Fenton's book, Feeding the Dragon, serves as part memoir, part warning cry, sharing what he has learned about international relations with China. He speaks regularly now as a China expert and serves as CEO of Media Capital Technologies, an entertainment finance company. A regular guest on Fox News, the BBC, and CNBC, Chris's work has also appeared in Real Clear Politics, The Federalist, and The Wrap. Chris Fenton, welcome to Present Value. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I always love being a a part of the Cornell community. Before you headed west to build an impressive career in show business, you were an engineering student at Cornell. Many of your peers, when you graduated, went to Wall Street, and you headed to the West Coast. What was it that drew you to Hollywood and what did your friends think of your career choice? Well, to tell you the truth, I was an engineering grad in 1993 and 93 was not a great economy overall. So as a B minus C plus student, I didn't have a lot of great opportunities coming out of the engineering school. Wall Street itself was also not the most enticing industry at the time. It was a little sluggish and wasn't sort of full of riches like it is potentially today. So that wasn't all that interesting to me. I actually really wasn't all that inspired by getting into the engineering business either. So I packed up my car and drove cross country. I stayed in my fraternity house, which was Phi Gamma Delta at various colleges across the country, sort of looking for a place to live. I read a book called Blue Highways by a Native American named William Least Heat Moon won a few Pulitzers back in the 70s, and it inspired me to sort of travel the blue highways of the United States and learn as much as I could about the country and sort of figure out where to settle my roots. Eventually, after about seven, I think it was seven months or so, being on the road, I stopped through Los Angeles, uh, met up with a good friend of mine, another uh, fraternity brother and a Cornell grad named John Strauss, who was a hotelie. He happened to be the assistant beverage manager of the Regent Beverly Wilshire on Rodeo Drive, which is the famous hotel where Pretty Woman took place. I crashed on his floor for a couple of days in Westwood and fell in love with Los Angeles. It was 72 and sunny every day. And I thought, this is the place I want to be. 
I was flat broke at the time. And as anybody that's read the book knows that to pay the bills, I had to get a job. And the first job I got out here was at the Olive Garden as a waiter in Westwood. You actually applied your engineering prowess to rig the Olive Garden system, much to your benefit and to the, the manager on the scene. Well, I rigged it in a sort of a Robin Hood type of way. I, I thought there was a, an interesting play in order to, to essentially get an employee this, the month status and help my cause with the corporate demands of selling additional beverages and desserts and so on. So I figured out an interesting way to do that and also provide the customer a better experience uh, for a better price. So it worked out for all sides. Before we dive into your work in China, I want to spend a moment acquainting our listeners with the role of a production executive. Uh, I'd imagine many of them can imagine what an actor or a director or a screenwriter does, but they may struggle to understand exactly what role a production executive has in a movie's success. So if a college senior considering a move to Hollywood today was to ask you, what exactly does a production executive do, what would you tell her? Well, it's an interesting question because when I when I came across a couple guys that were having dinner at the Olive Garden that were in the entertainment business, they said, oh, you got to get into this business. It's the Wall Street of the 90s. And I said, I'm not even an actor or a director. So like, what else is there? And they said, oh, there's a whole industry around actors and directors and making movies. And production executive is one of those. And if you look at sort of the scope of work that a production executive does, it starts at the very early R&D stage of the product that we create in Hollywood, which is movies, if we're in the, talking about the movie business. So they actually will find something that inspires them as a story, whether it's a book or whether it's a video game or whether it's a script or whether it's some sort of just idea or pitch, they'll go out and acquire that, acquire the rights to it. And then over time, that R&D period is what we call the development process, where you take sort of the seed of whatever that idea is or script and develop it into something that you feel like at some point becomes a green lightable sort of project, which means, okay, you got the blueprint for what the movie's going to be as perfect as possible. Now let's start to cast the different elements that blueprint needs in order to green light into a movie. So that means if in terms of building a house or whatever you're putting the, you know, you got the architect with the blueprint, but you got to get the contract and the electrician and the plumber and all that kind of stuff. Well, in the movie business, you want to find the right actor, the right director, the right producers, and you put all that together. And then at some point, it's either ready to die in the vine or it's ready to actually what they say, green light into production. So there's a committee of production execs and accountants and the CFO and the CEO and the marketing people and the distribution people, and they all get together and say, okay, this movie is going to cost X hundred million dollars. Here are the elements that are involved with this particular script, the actor, writer, director. Here's what the branding can be around the marketing. Do we think we can get people in seats to go see it? And then if that is the case, what would be our distribution plan? When would we release it? How would it work around the world? And if all that stuff comes together in a way that makes it sound like a great business to move forward with that widget, then the green light is made and they commit $100 million or $200 million to making that movie. And then they additionally commit to another P&A spend, prints and advertising spend, which means in order to make that movie work, they got to spend 
more than what they it cost to actually make the movie. So a typical $200 million tentpole movie will cost another almost $300 million in print and advertising, which is mainly just advertising now, to make sure consumers around the world are aware of it and want to engage in it by converting into a consumer that watches it at a movie theater. So that is a long-winded way of saying those are the different responsibilities and sort of acumen that you need to be a successful production exec. And so as much as all of that is, in your career, you've not only been a production executive, but you've done so on a, a global scale. In the core strategy class here at Johnson, we spend a lot of time learning Michael Porter's five forces, which is used in business school and in strategy settings as a, a model for analyzing a company or an industry. And as someone personally, I'll be working as a strategy consultant after business school. I was fascinated to read your homage to Porter, Fenton's Five Forces of Diplomacy. Can you share these forces with our listeners? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I didn't get an MBA, so I had I, I stupidly had never heard of Porter's Five Forces. It was actually a friend of mine who had heard me do a Bloom, an interview on Bloomberg Television. His name was Andy Campion, and he's actually the CFO, COO of Nike right now. And he said, hey, you were talking about these interesting forces of diplomacy. I think you said there were five of them. And I said, yeah, there's essentially national security interests, po political interests, human rights, culture and commerce. And he said, yeah, well, there's this guy, Porter, who created the Porter's Five Forces of Business. So you should actually label yours, Fenton's Five Forces of Diplomacy. It'll be catchy and sort of something that you can work off of for uh, future lectures and speaking engagements. I said, that's a great idea. So I actually applied it to interviews as I was writing the book. And then, of course, I implemented it into the book. The Essentially, the essence of those five forces, in particular, I talk about it with regards to China a superpower, the only other superpower. And it's the fact that there's five forces of diplomacy that can potentially keep our two countries in communication. I liken it to a cell phone and a cell tower, right? If you have perfect cell service, you have five bars of service that are working. In a superpower relationship between the US and China, you would have all five working, right? National security, politics, human rights, commerce, and culture. Unfortunately, we have gotten to the point where we realize we are never going to agree with China on politics, on human rights, or on national security interests. So that leaves us with two bars of service potentially left, which, by the way, still gives you a pretty good cell service if that's what you're relying on. And my thesis of the book is the fact that we need to keep those two, two bars of service, those two diplomatic forces alive in order to keep the superpowers from engaging in a cold war or something worse, a war. So the space that I happen to work in, which was in sports, in music, in television, in film, all of that is very culturally relevant. And it also creates commerce around that culture. And those two forces, when you're making movies and making music or doing sports events or whatever it is, really create this human emotional glue between the two countries that's really hard to break apart. So I feel very hopeful if we just focus on those two forces, we can actually have a competitively strategic relationship with China. And if we can't, we may as well enter a war because that's what's going to happen eventually. 
Thank you for explaining that. And it's fascinating to hear you say that. And I admit that when I saw the title and subtitle of your book, Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma, Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business, I was expecting to read a takedown of American firms kowtowing to Chinese interests, but instead I found a, a subtle and passionate take on, as you just described, the value of building a coalition with a great power while simultaneously evaluating the costs of doing so. You, as you just did, call for cultural diplomacy rather than necessarily the drawing of hard lines. My question is, can you, for our listeners, steel man your recommended approach to American-Chinese collaboration and maybe discuss the advantages you see for American and international interests? Yeah, number one is you were right on the book. I mean, what I wanted to do was tell a, a, a story that was very colorful and chaotic and, and had all kinds of fun anecdotes in that I've told over the years in panel discussions and interviews, tell it in a Michael Lewis type of memoir. I wanted a nice beginning and middle and end. And I also wanted to make it timeless. So I really focused on the years 2000 through 2014. And then I brought it into the present day with this congressional delegation trip that I did last August. The goal of that was really to show how we got here in this relationship, right? There's so much, I mean, Donald Trump has brought a lot of attention to the Chinese relationship. There's lots of hawks out there, way more hawkish than I am in Washington, D.C., and constituents and journalists and critics and members of the populace that really are focused on how bad this relationship is, how unfair it is to America, how we should decouple, how we have national security interests, all that kind of stuff, right? And if you look at it from that narrative, it seems that anybody that is engaged with it today or anybody that was engaged with it in the past was a greedy capitalistic thug, you know, looking to sell out America at any moment just to make a buck. Now, that was not the case. It still really isn't the case. There's this massive globalist mission that we had been under for the last 40 years where opening China by any means necessary to the products and services of America was in the best interest of Americans. And that was the mission I lived under and was guided by. So anytime somebody called me a shill for China or like the LA Times called me a Benedict Arnold or when my wife said, hey, are you sure you're okay with doing this? It seems like you're feeding the beast or whatever. I would always brush it off and say, hey, look, you don't really understand what's going on. What we are doing is in the best interest of America and we want to continue doing this, and you'll realize what I'm doing is right. Well, the fact is, now I look back at it, particularly after the Daryl Morey tweet of last October, which is who's the Houston Rock or was the Houston Rockets GM, and he tweeted out his support for Hong Kong protesters, which got the NBA in a lot of trouble with China. That moment really sort of woke me up to the fact that wow, I was told to smoke cigarettes for the last 40 years because it's healthy. And now I'm realizing that was the worst thing I could have done for my health. The same thing has happened to capitalists and to globalists in regards to how we engaged with China over the last four years. We're now realizing what had happened has really been detrimental to America overall. It's been great for shareholders and investors and C-suite executives and various sort of top 1% people. But the 95% plus of America has really felt ill effects from this relationship. And to date, 
because of Daryl Morey and various other things that have been brought to light, anybody that is engaged in the exchange of commerce, culture, any sort of business relationship with China is completely cognizant of the negative effects on America. It's a lot like that documentary, The Social Dilemma, right? Like everybody involved with social media knows how terrible it is for America. So why doesn't anybody stop it? Well, it's because there's so much money to make from social media. The same is to be said about the China engagement. There's so much money at stake, no one wants to stop it. So it's very hard for people like me and others to come out and talk about it because so many people don't want us talking about it. But the bottom line is we can never, and this goes back to your question, like we can never address China, how to engage properly with China in the way that is fair and balanced for America if we refuse to talk about the problem, if we refuse to discuss potential ways to fix it, i.e., you look at the SEC, right? The SEC has accounting requirements that are placed on all companies, entities that are trying to tap into the capital markets of the U.S. Chinese companies don't have to follow those guidelines. Why? Because they hide behind state secret laws, right? Which is something that the SEC says, well, if you're actually partially owned by a government entity, then technically you can hide behind state secret laws. So you can have a different regulatory environment to, to tap into Wall Street's, you know, capital, you know, environment, which is ridiculous because it puts everybody else at a disadvantage. The same thing can be said for the way we designate China as a developing nation when it's actually a fully developed nation now. Yes, you get into third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier cities or in the farmlands in the outskirts of Beijing where we find farmers to be security experts. It is developing. But if you look at the massive scope of that economy, the fact that's as big, if not bigger than the US, we need to redesignate them. And that will put them on a different sort of ground rule basis where suddenly our companies can compete at the same level as theirs and we stop playing on this slanted, tilted playing field that's really working against us. So there's a lot of things where we need to talk about this stuff. We need to find check boxes where we can check each little thing as we guide towards this perfect North Star we're looking for, which we might not ever get to, but we need to get baby steps done in medium and short term. But we can't do that if no one wants to talk about it. You expose what's really a subtle complication here, which is that there are economic incentives to collaborate with China, and then there are cultural reasons not to completely shut them out. And to use your framework, the tenets of your first three forces, politics, human rights, and national security, they're viewed entirely differently in, in America and in China. And as we move forward on the path that you're advocating, I'm wondering how you can square the ethical implications of collaborating with the Chinese Communist Party while holding views that are contrary to many of their policies? So how you can engage with them when you don't see eye to eye with them? Yeah, well, I mean, number one is like, it's good to look in the mirror a lot when it comes to some of this stuff. Okay, so politics, I don't know if you can necessarily apply ethics to the form of government that they have versus ours, right? We think our form of government's best for us. They think their form of government's best for them. So let's take, you know, sort of ethics and morals out of it and just say, let's agree to differ against those two sides because one side believes in one thing and the other side believes in another. 
And it's actually hard to argue against their form of communism when it comes to 1.4 billion people because they've brought 600 million out of poverty and they're still counting at an exponential rate that is so different than or so awesome compared to anything else that's happened on earth that you go, well, maybe it does actually work for them. When you have national security interests, I'd also argue that their side of the world where they're doing certain things that make us very upset, you could see in their point of view, I don't understand why we can't have a base that we build in the South China Sea, why we can't actually have facilities in various Belt and Road Initiative countries where we're actually building ports or putting some of our warships or whatever, because the United States has it in what, 160 countries. We're also just as big and crazy as far as the superpower is concerned. So why are we essentially mitigating what we can do compared to what the U.S. is? So in a way, you can sort of look and see how they justify stuff. Now, that said, we are definitely not going to agree with them on national security issues, but I'm going to take the ethics and morals out of that and essentially say that and politics we put aside. Now you got human rights. Human rights is definitely in the ethic moral camp, right? So what they're doing with Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province, that's an atrocity. It's terrible. What they did you could argue with the Hong Kong protesters and the way they clamped down and the way they actually moved ahead on their encroachment and takeover of Hong Kong from that one country, two systems policy a full 27 years early. That not only is probably non-ethical, it's actually breaking a deal they made with the UK um, way, way early. So there are issues there where we go, well, why are we doing business with these this entity, this superpower that has completely different ethics and morals when it comes to the treatment of human beings. Well, I would argue if we're going to place some sort of mandate that people have the same, abide by the same principles, values of Americans, we need to apply that all over the world. And a place that I find very hard to fathom how we can be so tough on China, yet we're so sort of light with them in regards to their human rights atrocities would be Saudi Arabia. Right. And a lot of the Middle Eastern countries that we actually have business with, particularly the oil exchange with, if we're going to apply one rule to China, it should be applied to every country around the world, including the mineral and, and resources you know, trade that we have with Russia and various other places in Africa. We need to have a consistent sort of basis that we all follow. We don't have that. So until we do, it seems as if it's fair game to actually engage with China. Now, the other argument is the more we have the exchange of culture and commerce occurring between our two countries, the more influence those products and services are going to have inside of that country and potentially spread democratic principles among their populace and maybe even among their government. The idea is, at least it was with globalists, is that over time they will become more like us. We haven't really seen that transpire, but there is an argument there that that type of influence, that type of aspirational quality that our products and services bring in there and the fact that there is a high demand for it among their populace could eventually bring them more like us. So it's a long-winded talk around the subject that we all want to say, no, we don't want to do any more business with a country that is doing this terrible stuff. But the fact of the matter is, the practical side of it is, we are. 
So how are we justifying it? And how do we actually think about maybe how we can help correct it over time? Those are the conversations that need to be had. Now, the one other thing I'm gonna add is their encroachment on our free speech rights here in the United States of America is completely uncool. Like it needs to stop now. We need to be able to say and criticize what we don't agree with with China. Daryl Morey, when he tweets his support for Hong Kong as the GM of Houston Rockets, when he does that in Houston, Texas, he should be protected by the laws of our land and protected by our government and protected by the rest of his industry peers so that if there is retaliation against that free speech right in China, we in solidarity shut down anything we're doing with that country until they fix it, right? We have to protect the First Amendment rights in this country, and we have not to this point, and it's time we do. And if we don't, we're never going to be able to address the stuff that you just brought up that are ethical and moral issues because we're not even allowed to talk about them. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you look at the, the Daryl Morey incident and then it was followed up with a LeBron James tweet criticizing Morey for saying that at the time because there were American athletes on their way to China for an event. And, and LeBron James indicated that Morey had to do his research, something to that extent. It brings up the question of how can the NBA continue to court the Chinese audience while maintaining free speech? And it sounds like you're advocating for a shutdown in that case, which goes against the economic interests of the NBA. So how can the NBA court that audience and maintain those free speech rights that you're so passionate about? I actually think it's in the best interest of the Chinese Communist Party to allow us the release that is involved with actually voicing criticism for things. Like when they clamp down on it, when they clamp down on Daryl Morey's free speech rights, when they clamp down on Disney being able to apologize for the fact that in their latest movie, Mulan, they had a card and credits in the end credit role of the movie, um, thanking various officials involved with the atrocities going on in Xinjiang province because of the access they were granted in regards to shooting that movie. In a world where we are allowed to have First Amendment rights here in this country, Disney should have come out and said, we are sorry. That was a terrible oversight that we had in there. We never meant that to look like we condone what's happening in the Xinjiang province. And we actually are really adamantly against it. And we would like the world to unite on coming up with a solution. That is something that they should have been able to do. And there's something they should have done. If they did do that, all the hypocrisy that was put out there as far as the messaging about them staying quiet. Remember, Disney is arguably the most iconic Hollywood studio. That means it's the most iconic vehicle for free speech rights, for the freedom of expression, creative freedoms, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly they're putting the, their head in the sand, pretending like that problem didn't exist. So the hypocrisy was rampant. And they had all kinds of journalists and critics and the population here in the U.S. was super upset. And it got to the point where it boiled into our leaders, our political leaders saying, wait a minute, we're going to jump into it, too. So Senator Josh Hawley sent a letter to the CEO of Disney demanding an explanation. So did a bipartisan group of both Senate and House members. 
they did the same thing. And of course, all of that, which could have been a tempest in a teapot and just completely deflated as far as pressures is concerned, if Disney just had the ability to give a free speech sort of statement on it, it boiled over. It exploded into something that became a geopolitical issue. It spread across the Pacific. It wasn't containable by the firewall that the CCP has for its populace. Their populace heard about it. It started to become a discussion piece. Then CCP had to come in and clamp down on the marketing of the movie and making sure that people stopped talking about it. And it became a huge face loss, both for Disney and for the CCP, which by the way, could have totally been avoided if Disney was just allowed to say what they should have said, right? The same thing you could argue with Daryl Morey. That thing turned into a geopolitical issue when, quite frankly, if you just said it, they firewalled a tweet from their people seeing it, it would have been a completely sort of contained tempest in a teapot sort of spark that never ignited. And it would have worked without like causing any sort of face loss with the CCP over there. So they need to think practically because A, they're clamping down on one of the most important rights in our country, which is ridiculous. And that is going to cause more and more agitation and eventually serious anger towards the Chinese if we haven't even got there yet. That is going to happen. So that is building. And then on top of it, every time they clamp down on it, it turns into a much bigger issue than it should have been. So they need to be practical and smart and allow us that freedom. Right. Like it's crazy. I have to ask for it back. But we do. And I wrote an op ed about it in the South China Morning Post with the solutions on how to get this done and why it's in the best interest of the Chinese government. And I even gave a keynote in Beijing four weeks ago at the China Forum on the same thing. And they didn't censor it, which was fantastic. So maybe they're listening. I hope they are. This is actually a great transition because I, I want to make sure our listeners understand the, the work that you did on Looper and Iron Man 3 to get co-production status. In the intro, I said you produced those films and in your book, you go through an incredible ordeal with courting and achieving co-production status on those films. Can you help our listeners understand what that means, both for the production process and for the film that ends up on theaters, both in America and in China? And then perhaps contrast that with a film like Mulan that was not a co-production status as, as those two films were? Well, I mean, it really comes down to a basic sort of law, which I put into the book is like, if you're going to come away with one thing in this book, come away with maybe Fenton's Five Forces of Diplomacy. And then this other idea of like how to understand China 101 for dummies, right? Which by the way, I consider myself a dummy about it too, because there's just only so much you're going to understand about China as an American, especially one that's living here. Like there's a lot of nuance to that country. And for me not to get caught up in that rabbit hole of trying to understand it too deeply than I'll ever be able to, I just look at it the top part of the onion, which is you got 1.4 billion people there, right? And the goal of the Chinese Communist Party is to keep those 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt. And the reason I say just happy enough is because there's just simply not enough resources on earth to make them all happy. So you gotta essentially give them all what they need and some of what they want. Now, the problem is a lot of those people don't even have all of what they need. So you need to provide messaging to them that they will eventually get that. And then even once they get that, they'll start to get some of what they want. And then the people higher up on the pecking order will start to get more of what they want, 
right? And that messaging is almost as strong, if not stronger, than the actual applied execution of what that actual agenda is, right? So when you're looking at a movie like Looper, you're doing a couple of things. One is you're doing the applied execution of following that mandate, making 1.4 billion people just happy enough they don't revolt. How do you do that? Well, you're creating jobs on the ground over there by shooting some of the production there. You're using their below-the-line crews. You're using an actress in it. You're using various other components and vendors around it. And then on top of it, you're providing skill set exchanges with best-in-class operators of camera equipment, gaffers, electrician, whatever it is, with the Chinese, their Chinese counterparts. So they're learning from Hollywood, which is the best in the world, to essentially apply the same type of process to their own local film business. That is essential to creating middle-class jobs, which put more people from poverty into the middle class, providing all what they need and some of what they want. Now, Part of that also involves not everybody can get a job working on Looper. So you need to broadcast all of that stuff that you're doing on behalf of the Chinese so that all the people that aren't a part of that go, oh, this is really interesting. In order to allow this movie from Hollywood in, they're doing all this great stuff for the Chinese, right? So maybe I'm not going to work on that movie or maybe I'll never work on a movie because I'm not in that business but it looks like this studio and the people involved from America in making this film are creating opportunities and more opportunities and training and educating people to create even more opportunities down the road, which gives the aspirational sort of quality combined with the applied uh, execution to make that look like this Chinese Communist Party has everybody's back, right? And as long as it looks like that, they'll never have another June 4, 1989, which was their Tiananmen Square scare, right? On top of that, you wanna create this idea that we're gonna make China look amazing, right? Like there's a pride issue, there's a face issue. So in the movie, we actually took what was supposed to be France in the future, 40 years in the future of Looper, and we convinced the filmmakers to shoot the movie in China because of the things I just talked about. But then on top of it, use the backdrop of Shanghai as the most magnificent city in the world in 40 years, right? So that we created the backdrop, the skyline, the different sort of things that the Chinese, the Chinese central government, as well as the provincial and the Shanghai municipal government wanted to showcase what their city would look like 40 years in the future to create this sort of mecca of where they're going and how China's gonna be the center of the world and how successful it's gonna be. And all that plays into keeping 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt, right? There's a pride factor, a nationalistic factor. There's the messaging that this middle class is getting built bigger and bigger because of the way Looper's being done. And then there's the actual applied amount of people that are involved in making that movie from China. So you have all those layers satisfied then the Chinese Communist Party says, you know what? You did good with this. We're going to give you access to our consumers. We're going to give you the ability to market and promote the heck out of this Western form of content, which normally they never do. And then on top of it, instead of getting a measly 13 cents of every dollar that that movie makes, we got 43 cents of every dollar. So we created massive wind to our back with that product and service, that widget 
because we thought about the biggest sort of outermost layer of the onion, which is keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough they don't revolt. You touch on one of the creative elements that you had to go through to get co-production status because the CCP actually bans time travel movies in China and Looper's one of the biggest time travel hits of the last couple of decades. And it was because they showed a future China that looked good that allowed them to approve that in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's weird for a lot of people to understand, well, why is time travel banned? Well, it's because the messaging of the Ministry of Propaganda which is in charge of messaging that aspirational, hey, we're the government taking care of you, our citizens. They wanna control the narrative of where things are going in the future for China. And they also wanna control the narrative of where things have been in, in regards to history of, of China. So time travel is very sensitive to them when it's told through the eyes of Western content makers. And the version of these films that we saw in the States or that would have been seen in Europe may be different than the version that ended up on Chinese screens. How does that process go come about? Well, there's two ways. One is the censored sort of content way where the movie's made and then they issue it to the Chinese Communist Party through an entity called China Film Group, which used to be under the state administration of radio, film and television, but now they report directly to the Ministry of Propaganda. A bunch of officials view the film. They go, hey, this area is sensitive. This area we don't like. This area needs to be cut, whatever it is. So you'll see stuff that in the States just looks like the movie. In China, you'll see maybe a movie that's shorter because of the stuff they cut out. You might see some blurred things in there because it's a Taiwanese flag on somebody's shoulder or whatever it is, right? So there's that version. Then there's the version we did with Looper and also with Iron Man 3, where we actually extended the movie for China because we wanted to showcase more of the China relevancy that was in the movie that didn't necessarily fit making the best movie possible for the rest of the world. Now, that was sort of a trick that I talked about in the book in order to satisfy government officials at the time. You're no longer able to do that. Now, and you see this through wolf warrior diplomacy and a lot of the other narratives that the Chinese Communist Party pushes around the world. If they see something in their market in that movie, it needs to be the same cut the rest of the world sees, right? Like they do not want something made specifically for their market versus somewhere else. It's a different movie. Like if they're going to grant wind to your back because of certain things that are Chinese relevant in that film, they want to make sure that's seen around the world. I'm curious about that because in researching for this episode, I actually discovered, I, I wasn't aware that AMC, which is the largest theater chain in the United States, is controlled by a Chinese conglomerate, the Wanda Group. I'm wondering if that aspect of Chinese ownership of American cinemas has an impact on either films that are greenlit or creative choices that are made in Hollywood, either due to the Chinese ownership of AMC or to that aspect that you just mentioned where the same version of the film needs to be the version that's shown worldwide. The AMC, and remember AMC and Carmike were both bought by Dylan Wanda. They were fully owned by Wanda up until the, the part uh, a few years ago, they did a spinoff IPO. It's actually interesting that we've been looking to bail out AMC theaters when and 40% of it is owned by a Chinese entity. So I would argue that 40% owner should actually bail out the company themselves. Do they use censorship here in the U.S. 
for access to those theaters? I would say no, but they really don't have to because the stuff that's super sensitive that maybe they would have an issue with has already been sort of premeditatedly censored in Hollywood in terms of the content itself anyway, because that content needs to be shown around the world. And China knows about that content. And if it's something that's super sensitive or controversial to the Chinese Communist Party, there will be retaliation. And that's another thing that's a real problem. I mean, we talked about in the past, you might have seen this Senator Ted Cruz issue with the latest Tom Cruise reboot of Top Gun, where there's a jacket that he wears in a flight jacket that had the Taiwanese and Japanese flag in it. The Chinese government said, you can't have those flags on the jacket if you want this movie in China. So Paramount and Skydance, who made the movie, said, okay, we'll blur those out for your market. And they said, no, 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 we don't want those blurred out for our market. We want to blur it out for the whole world. Like, we don't want anybody seeing the Taiwanese flag or the Japanese flag. And that's where cross-border censorship, which we talked about Daryl Morey and the Disney issue, that's where we have to draw the line. Like, if we want to show that flag on the jacket around the world and allow people to know that actually we see Taiwan differently than the Chinese do, and we're definitely an ally of Japan, even though China's not, like, we have that right, and we should be able to do it. And the people in Argentina should be able to see that right on screen. And the people in Germany should be able to see that right on screen. So that's a real issue and something that we need to address as a country. And it's all part of the free speech rights that we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. And the film industry as a whole has been a a phenomenal tool for cultures to be able to push out their vision of themselves or their aspirations for themselves onto the world. You mentioned being at the Beijing Forum four weeks ago, and, and you know we're recording this in early November 2020. China seems to be in a different place with regard to its recovery from the coronavirus pandemic than the United States is. And China's been able to continue production while Hollywood remains largely frozen. I'm wondering what this asymmetry might mean for the future of the film industry in both countries in the short term or in the long term. Well, we're seeing it play out firsthand. I mean, they've had movies in China that have grossed a half billion dollars in that market since COVID came out. I mean, so they're they've bounced back in a huge way theatrically here in the States. We're barely alive. Right. So not only are we barely alive post-COVID and the fact that we haven't been able to open our theaters the way they have. But on top of it, our theater-going experience, that habit by Americans was sort of fragile to begin with going into COVID. I have two 13-year-old kids. I don't hear them always talking about how they want to see a movie every Friday night like I did growing up. So that habit has been very, it has been in jeopardy for a while. What happened with COVID and when COVID came out, that just amplified or exacerbated the demise, potentially a part of that theater going habit. So we have a double whammy going on where their market not only has bounced back to where it was, but it's actually starting to grow again in a very fast way. And our market has sort of diminished into almost nothing. And when COVID comes, you know, is completely stymied, do we come back to some resemblance of what we were before? I would argue, yes. Are we going to go back to where we were pre-COVID? I would say almost definitely not. So the dependency or the addiction to revenues out of China by Hollywood are only going to get more intense. And, and that's where 
that push-pull of us trying to correct some of the imbalances between the U.S. and China are going to get even harder to address because the money is going to be so big over there. It's interesting you mentioned the future of film production because you actually serve as the CEO of Media Capital Technologies, which is a film financing firm and alternative asset manager. In part, what MCT does is to provide financing for up to 15 major motion pictures annually. And on the website, there it indicates that MCT emphasizes highly commercial films that are likely to have broad global appeal. I'm thinking of the famous William Goldman quote that you never know what you have until real people have to pay to see a movie. And short of revealing your secret sauce, I'm wondering what allows you or MCT to guess right. Yeah, no, no one knows anything when it comes to movie picking. It's terrible, right? Like there's the best in the world at it are, you know, 50 to 60 percenters, right? So what we do is we try to amortize risk and reward over a full slate of movies at a major studio. And we've raised our Series A and now we're actually raising the capital, go do it. So we haven't implemented it yet, but we know the studio we're going to put it at. We know what their track record is with the management we have you know, a city who's working on it with a couple of the big private equity groups that look like they're coming in. So once we have that set up, we dock it at a major studio and then we're fully we're invested at roughly 25 percent of the negative cost of all their movies over the course of five years. So we're essentially investing on the thesis that has kept these studios around for over a century and on top of it, we're investing in the content itself. We are not investing in the platform. So we're platform agnostic. I would not get into the bricks and mortar space of theatrical exhibition right now, nor probably would I. Maybe in China, if that was an opportunity. But like here in the United States, it looks like our first window of distribution is going to slowly migrate into a premium VOD or some other pay-per-view type of model combined with, you know, theatrical for the big, crazy tentpole movies, right? We're just investing in that super, super high quality premium content play, which seems to be getting less and less common over the years, right? I mean, if you look at the amount of content created, I think in the last two years, there's been more content created than in the history of mankind. And that's because of all the user generated content on TikTok and you know YouTube to the higher quality stuff to the quibbies that obviously didn't exist you know or may not exist anymore but all these different sort of platforms on top of the traditional TV space on top of the independent film space but in the movie business that super premium content that the major studios make is only made by five studios and they make on average 12 to 15 movies a year. Say that's 15 movies times five studios. That's 75 movies of say a hundred minutes in length. That's 7,500 minutes of super premium content among this massive coal mine that's ever expanding of lesser content. So that diamond that we're investing in becomes more and more rare and more and more in demand. So we feel like it's a very smart when it comes to investors. Absolutely. And, and you know, you talk about these these tentpole films that are the the ones that'll bring people out of their homes. And before we started recording, we were talking about the the independent movie theater at at Cornell, the Cornell Cinema. And my sense is between the time you graduated from Cornell and now, the number of 
non-tentpole movies that can get people out of their homes and into theaters has has diminished drastically. And you said that your your kids aren't angling to go to the theater every Friday night like like you or I probably did when we were when we were their age. And Martin Scorsese's even gone so far as to say that you know some of these films that have broad appeal uh, shouldn't be called films. And I'm wondering when you know you'll you're going to choose to finance a film if there's a choice between quality and appeal, or if there's a difference between the film that you would want to see and the, the film that you would want to finance? Well, I mean, you, you look at the studio slate and you're invested in all their films. So they, the nice thing about a studio is they try to play the game of, of a wide breadth of types of films, whether it's like small genre movies, to comedies, to big tent poles, to dramas, to everything in between. And a part of that reason is that the consumer is fickle. You know, there's different things that are in the zeitgeist at any particular time. So some of these movies really strike a chord and some of them are, you know, good size bets to see if they work or not, but maybe don't end up blowing off the top of the box office, but they become long tail plays over various forms of exploitation over a long period of time. So we aren't picking like, oh, is this one going to be a critically acclaimed movie? Should we pass on that? Or is that what we want to do? We're saying we want to be a part of all that diversified portfolio because there's going to be some flops in there and there's going to be some singles, doubles and triples and a few home runs. And then on top of it, the efficiency of releasing movies, like we talked about prints and advertising costs, there's not even film prints anymore. That was a really expensive thing to move around. Now it's on digital DCPs or it's even beamed out. So that cost has gone away. And then on top of it, marketing costs, especially when you start going into a first run, you know, whatever that first window of distribution is that isn't theatrical, it becomes a lot more efficient to monetize the content because A, you're using platforms or the first page of your Netflix or whatever it is, trying to guide the right type of people to convert into a user of that content. And then on top of it, you're not splitting receipts with a theatrical exhibitor. You're actually keeping it all to yourself because it's a DTC play or you sell it outright to a third party. So you, you mentioned that the shift to premium video on demand as increasingly where more and more media is being watched by end consumers. I'm wondering if that's going to shape how MCT or film studios will account for the ongoing risk of negative externalities like COVID-19 or some unknown risks in the future, where there's this increasing tendency for filmgoers to watch from their living rooms instead of cinemas. What, what factors are you considering there? Well, I think there's definitely um, going to be some interesting efficiencies that are discovered, right? Like, number one is if you don't have to get people out of their house, the movies don't necessarily have to be as crazy big and eventful, right? Like, people will be like, oh, sitting around, like, let's watch a movie. That's a five minutes, you know, set up your TV and buy it and all that kind of stuff. It's not much of a hassle, Whereas if you're trying to get somebody out of the house to go park and buy concessions and buy all that kind of stuff, it's got to be a real event. It's got to be something they need to get out of the house for. So you're going to get a little more efficient on sort of how you look at budgets. Number two is to blow something up on a big screen. Like I talk about Looper, that was a $35 million movie. IMAX really wanted to get involved with that in China. We blew it up just to do a test of certain scenes. And we realized the scope of the movie at 35 million 
didn't really play well on IMAX. Like you could sort of see some of the limitations of the sets and the different things that we had that are limited by the amount of production budget you have. So in something where you know people are going to engage in it at their home on something smaller than a massive multiplex screen or an IMAX screen or whatever, you can actually bring down production scope too, which brings down budgets. So you're going to see these efficiencies start to work. And then on top of it, as they start to understand the amount of people that will engage in that content with a different form of first window and sort of what that monetization case study looks like, they're going to start saying, well, now we got to bring budgets to this level versus keep them at this level because it's only a certain amount of people that we can count on to go watch this film at any given time. Um, we might actually see, hey, by the way, there's so much money to make in this first window change because the efficiencies are so much better. Maybe it does allow budgets to get higher. I think on top of it, you're going to see some of this post-COVID world where the idea of, of a virus um, creating the kind of hassle that COVID has to all of us in all walks of life, I think was sort of something none of us really thought about before. Now, everybody's thinking about it and whether everybody forgets about it at some point, I don't know, but assume that people will remember it. Then the idea is how do you shoot movies to keep that sort of risk mitigated? And that's going to probably bring down sort of size and scope of certain movies too. You're not going to want as many extras running around. You're not going to want as many of a crew, you know, crew that seems to be sort of, redundant or maybe not necessary um, because you can pull down the scope of a particular shot or whatever it is, you're going to try to limit that stuff too, just in the event another virus breaks out so that the damage isn't as bad. Chris, I have one last question. We're recording this episode on November 4th, which is the day after the U.S. presidential election. And when we started recording, the presidential race was still too close to call. But by the time this episode comes out, I'm imagining we'll have a sense of who's going to be the president moving forward. And my question is, if you were tasked to head a China committee for the administration of whichever president uh, has been elected, what would be your guiding message of leadership? Well, my guiding message of leadership is, I guess, a couple fold. I mean, number one is we got to stop talking about fully decoupling. It's just not practical. The only way to do it is through war. And we really, like the Europeans did in the early 1800s for us, because we took advantage of them through tariffs and protectionist policies and ripping off their IP and all that kind of stuff. They helped us build our industrial revolution, whether they wanted to or not. And then at some point they said enough is enough, but they didn't decouple from us. They actually said, hey, we helped them build this economy they got. Let's take advantage of it. Well, we did the same thing with China, right? Like we helped them get to where they are. We did a lot of stupid things across the way by opening that market, like forced JVs and tech transfers and all kinds of you know, play into their tariff and protectionist policy games, move offshore a lot of our supply chain issues, national security interests, manufacturing jobs, all that stuff. We did a lot of terrible things and that helped them build the largest economy in the world, right? Well, now we're cognizant of that. Let's get smarter about it. Let's readdress how we engage with them. Like, let's make the playing field much more level, but let's take advantage of it, right? Like we built them. Let's get our money back now. That would be my 
sort of plan. And, then, and I feel that it would win over both Doves and Hawks and no matter what administration you're in. So um, I feel like there's a real advantage to sort of take here if we put on the right mindset. We think about it in terms of what's good for the country as a whole while also knowing the strategic competitor we're playing with. And then on top of it, I would also say we have a ticking clock. Like we only have a certain amount of time where we can protect our patriotic values and the capitalistic instincts and sort of the capitalism that we created as Americans when it comes to China. They're encroaching on both capitalism and our patriotism every single day, farther and farther. They're the teenager that had a curfew. No one was telling them that they broke curfew and now they're punished. So they kept encroaching farther and farther. And that curfew used to be 10 o'clock at night. Now it's three in the morning, right? We need to change it back to 11 o'clock at night and keep it there. And if we don't do that soon enough, we will lose what is so near and dear to us. And we will lose our way as Americans when it comes to engaging with that country. We have sold off too many important aspects of what makes this country great and what makes Americans great. And I don't mean to use the, the sort of Trump make America great thing, but it, it, but it is true. Like we are not doing it correctly and we've gone down such a path and so far and for so long that we will get to the point of no return. So we have a ticking clock there. So those would be the things that I would impress in that first sort of meeting of the board or meeting of the minds in the strategic war room or wherever we do it and then whatever administration it is. But China has to be addressed. It is a major, major issue that affects every American, everyone, right? And it's something that has nothing to do with, do you believe in God? Do you like gun rights? Do you, you know, want transgender bathrooms, whatever it is. It's not a social issue situation. It's a populist, economic, nationalistic issue that affects all of us. And we need to address it both red and blue, no matter what party you're affiliated with. It's something we need to come together on to take care of, and we need to do it now. Chris Fenton, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for appearing on the Present Value Podcast. I'm totally humbled. And anybody that wants to engage on social media, I'm at the Dragon Feeder on uh, Twitter, and I'm happy to come back anytime. I love Cornell. I'm a big, big blue, you know, I'm like, like I'm a blue blooded, red blooded, like big, you know, Cornell, big red guy. Um, and I'm super excited about, uh, you know, always being engaged with the community. So thanks for having me on. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Paul Whitko, Christine Gabrellian, Gleb Margolin, and me. I'm your host, Greg Wool. Music by Pottington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomungo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.